folks. Welcome back to Good Vibes Nation. No Doug on the podcast, which means another amazing guest. This week's guest, oh man, she has a, an amazing life journey. The fact that she's here alone to tell us about it is a feat in itself. I'm intentionally going to limit the, the bio here on her, but I want to dive right in. So let's just get right to it. I want to welcome to the show, Jesse Gibbs. Jesse, how are you? Hi, I'm well. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, Jesse. It's I'm so excited. We talked a little bit off fair. I'll let you know, like I wanted a, a lot of our podcast to be organic, so we didn't talk too much. But if you listen to our cast, what we always love to do is start off our cast with guests telling us a little bit about themselves and their background, but your story, your journey, that's where it all begins. So instead of a little bit, I want to dive right in. Give us a lot. Tell us about the beginning. And specifically, tell us about who is Dolores Wood. Let's go there. That's a great question. So um, I wrote a book about my journey, and I was born in Rota, Spain. My mother was in the Navy, and she was on her, she had had six abortions before me that we're aware of. Mm. And so at 19, she'd already been pregnant six times. She got pregnant again and was going to have an abortion, but figured out that she could get out of the military if she had a baby. So she was going to put me up for adoption. They had a wonderful adoptive family that was going to adopt me. And three weeks before I was born, the Navy told her that, no, you actually have to keep the baby to be able to get out of the Navy. Otherwise, you get maternity leave for a little while and then you come back to work. So three weeks before I was born, she decided to keep me. She then spent three months trying to kill me, um, starving me. Uh, leaving me alone in the apartment for hours and hours at a time while she went out partying. Um, There, I have all of her letters. My grandmother was um, a very meticulous note keeper. And so I have all of the letters that my mother wrote to her when she was pregnant with me and also after the birth, where she talks about how I was exceptionally demanding as a newborn baby and shouldn't be allowed to be fed, to demand to be fed at any time. Oh, my God. I have letters. Yeah, it was... Yeah. Um, I actually have letters from the doctor that said that if if Jesse doesn't start gaining weight, we're taking her from you. Like she's starving to death. She's losing weight. And every baby loses a little bit of weight after yeah. they're born. But I wasn't gaining weight at all because Dolores was feeding me sugar water instead of formula because I would get full and immediately go to sleep and she could have peace. Oh so I wasn't getting any vitamins or nutrients or anything. It was pretty bad. So three months after I was born, she moved back to Vashon Island, which is a little island off the coast of Seattle here. And this is where her family was, her parents were. And so she moved back in with her parents with a newborn baby. She immediately started going out partying again, trying to find herself and leaving me alone with my grandparents. How old was she at this were, point? Did you say that? Did I miss that? She, she was, she was tw- 19 when I was born. Okay. Sorry, go ahead. So she was a baby. Yeah. Like she was a a baby going through this. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the challenges in writing this book was actually trying to get inside my mother's head so that I could write things from her perspective. Yeah. And I have all of her letters and notes and and, um, journals from my grandmother to pull from. So she, uh, after several months of me being left with my grandparents, my grandparents were like, what is going on? My mother decided to get married. So she married a man named Greg and moved to Canada for six months, came home, dropped me back off with my grandparents and said, I have to go fix my marriage, uh, and then disappeared. Three months later, she showed up pregnant again and had an abortion, which she actually delivered in the backseat of the car when I was two, and I saw the whole thing. Oh, my God. 
So at that point, she decided she was going to run away to North Carolina and wasn't sure what to do with having a two-year-old little girl. What do you do in that situation? And my grandparents said, you're giving us custody of Jesse. Like that's, it's not okay. She doesn't need to be going from place to place. She doesn't need to be left on the floor of a party house while you're off partying or left with random people. We're getting custody of Jesse to make sure she's taken care of. And my mother happily signed me over to my grandparents. Right. She went to North Carolina to find herself promptly joined a cult like you do and proceeded to, quote unquote, get her life together. She met another man that she married. Um, She actually her divorce was finalized the same day that she got remarried. Wow. All right. Yeah. So she um, she puts a lot of her internal self-worth in the person that she is connected to. Mm. Um, So she married a Marine in North Carolina, um, promptly had two more babies and um, two little boys. Mm -hmm. And then at that point I was five and she contacted my grandmother and said, Hey, I want custody of my daughter again. And my grandmother was like, no. Yeah. We've we've been down this route. This is not okay. Yeah. Then she contacted her father, my grandfather and said, Daddy, I want my daughter back. My grandfather was in a different mindset. He, and understand, my grandpa's a good man, Mm -hmm. and he adores me, but he also didn't want a highly troubled, very smart, very emotional little girl living in his house when he was just retired. Mm -hmm. And so he said, okay, we'll we'll give you custody of Jesse for three months, and we'll see how this works. Like, we'll just give it a go and see if this is a good fit. If it's a good fit, we can continue the conversation. So my grandmother flew me down to North Carolina, dropped me off with um, Dolores and Robert, her new husband, and and I got to meet my two little brothers, and then grandma flew home. Like, she literally left me at the airport with these people that I'd never met right. and disappeared. After three months, my mother started sending grandma's letters ripped to shreds back in an envelope and then sent back to her. She turned off her phone so grandma couldn't talk to me. Um, Any letters I got from my aunties who also lived in Washington State um, were ripped to shreds and sent back to them. Any boxes I got were sent back. Wow, this is crazy. So you moved, I don't want to cut you off, but you moved moved to to North Carolina. And from what I gather, right, it was near the, the Blue Ridge Mountains. Mm-hmm. Okay. Foothills of the Blue Ridge. Right. Beautiful area. Anyone familiar with North Carolina, the state of North Carolina, this is a beautiful area. So at that it point. It is stunning. Yeah. At that point in your life, like, you know, you're you're still young, but as an outsider looking in, you're like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of cheering, you know, maybe, maybe this is the turn in the story, right? Maybe she gets it together. Maybe, you know, she gets married. She has a couple of kids. She wants that happy family in a beautiful place, but it's not beautiful, right? And I think you're you're about to start going down that route, right? Yeah. Mm. So my mother was uh, very involved in the um, mindset that Bill Gothard had. And if, if you don't know who Bill Gothard is, uh, watch the documentary, Shiny Happy People. It's about the Duggar family, the 19 kids and counting family. Um, and we were really um, immersed in purity culture. Mm. So I was forced to wear long dresses with bloomers, um, cover my body so that I wasn't considered sexual in any way, shape or form. I was five. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, and uh, I was told that uh, my entire goal in life was to grow up and get married. And so to to be prepared for that, I had to practice that with my stepfather. Um, 
hold his hand when we go places, clean up after him, make his lunches, pray for him on a regular basis, um, tell him you're thinking about him, all of these things. And it got very quickly to the point where my parents would go into the boys' room and they would sing hymns and they would pray for them and tell them good night. Then they would come into my room and they would do the same. And then my mother would leave and Robert would stay with me. Oh my God. And this was just acceptable. This was just encouraged. Is this across the board in that culture? I guess. So the last part of it, no, but much of purity culture is about that. Like the mindset is very much that women are um, considered kind of uh, a stumbling block for men Mm -hmm. who have no control over their emotions or their thoughts. And so if your bra strap is showing, you are now seducing someone and that is you're causing them to stumble, which is against God's law. If you're wearing a shirt that is too low cut, or if you're wearing pants that are too tight or a shirt that is form fitting, or for heaven's sake, some places go as far as your ankles are showing, you know, those there, it varies from family to family, but yeah, I mean, purity culture is really damaging to women. So my mother basically cut off communication between my mother and my grandmother for 18 months. And during that time, Robert took full advantage of me um, with my mother's knowledge. After 18 months, my grandmother finally contacted, was able to contact my mother. And she's like, I'm flying down there to pick up Jesse. I have full custody rights to her. You cannot keep her. You cannot keep me from her. This is bullshit. And so she flew down to North Carolina. She spent five days at my family's house. My mother had trained me very well. And so had my stepfather that we don't talk about what's going on with Papa. And that if I said anything, I would destroy the family. Papa would go to jail and it would be my fault. I would be responsible for that. So at this point, I'm six years old. My grandmother was like, hey, I want to take Jesse out to lunch. My mother was like, no, you can't be alone with her. You're going to try and take her. Like, no, you can't be alone with her. And my grandmother was finally like, screw you, lady. Like, I have custody here. Like, you want to take this to court? We're going to court. And so she took me out to lunch and she's like, okay. I can tell something is wrong. What's going on? And I just spilled everything. Like, here's the situation. I'm not comfortable in the situation. I don't, I don't know what to do. Like, this is way too big for my tiny brain to handle. What do I do? Now, at this point, you have to understand my mother is five foot 10 and violent. My stepfather is six foot two and a Marine. Mm -hmm. My grandmother is five foot nothing and weighs a hundred pounds dripping wet. Yeah. These are not safe people. How are we going to get Jesse out of this situation? So my grandmother was paying for me to have a private Christian school. My mother was very insistent that I not be educated um, because, as she always said, girls don't need to know any more math than how to triple a batch of pancakes. Good Lord. So education was not a priority. Yeah. Um, Indoctrination definitely was. So I learned a lot about the church, but that was about it. So um, my grandmother was like, I'm going to take Jesse to school. I'm going to drop her off at school. And then I'm going to go to the airport. Everything's fine. We said goodbye. We went to the school. Grandma showed them all of her paperwork and was like, Jesse, I have full custody of Jesse. I'm the one paying for the school. Please do not report that she's missing. I'm taking her home. And she kidnapped me and took me back to Washington State. Mm. Fast forward eight or nine months. So it was December 7th, 1985. And my grandparents were living in a, we had moved from Vashon Island to Kent, Washington, and we were living in a retirement villa um, 
trailer park. Yeah. And so all of the postal, all of the mailboxes were all in one section down at the end of the trailer park. And so every day after dinner, my grandma and grandpa would take a walk and they would hold hands and be really cute and have like a five minute break from a hyperactive child. And they would walk down to the end of the block where they could still see the trailer. Yeah. And they would get the mail and they would come back. How? Let me cut you off real, real quick. How are you feeling at, at this point? Right. You've got you got rescued and you said you're you're back at your your grandparents in Washington for five to six months. Are you feeling relief? Through obviously what you've been through, like finally yes. this is it. I'm getting a, a sense of a normality. I'm home. I'm where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. I'm loved. I'm cared for. Right. I'm not changing diapers and cleaning house and keeping up with my mother yeah. and taking care of my stepfather. I'm home. You're a kid. And <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. You're being a kid. I'm actually allowed to be a kid. Yeah. Like I'm allowed to play dress ups again. Yeah. I'm allowed to wear decent you know, clothes dance in the living room or <laughs> go play with my cousin. Show like, your ankles. I was, I was home. <laughs> yeah. So, so go ahead. I'm sorry. My mother was the North Carolina director of an organization called WEBA at this point, which stands for Women Exploited by Abortion. Hmm. And she was um, violently pro life. Um, believed that um, not only was abortion um, killing babies, but also that if we really believed that, that bombing abortion clinics is totally appropriate. Though she was never technically caught doing that, she was very much for it. She went 180, that, huh? From what she had at 19 absolutely. years old? Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. And she used her parents as the example of um, that they had forced her into it, that she didn't want to have abortions, that she had been forced into it. This wasn't her fault. Mm. Um, she was actually on the 700 Club a couple of times as the North Carolina director of WEBA. Oh I actually have the the video wow. of, of one of the times that she was on. Yeah. And Pat Robertson, some of the things that she said about the way the abortion industry works were so incredibly off the wall that Pat Robertson himself didn't believe it. Wow. And that's saying a lot. So um, Mama had met a young woman by the name of Mary Sue, who was the national director of WEBA at a conference, become best friends with her and told her that my grandparents were holding me against my will, that I was being abused by them, that I was in an unsafe situation, and please, oh, please help me get my daughter back. So Mary Sue lived in Michigan. She flew to Washington State with my mother, and they tracked me for three days. They followed me to school. They followed my school bus. They watched our house. My grandparents went for a walk to get the mail. There was a knock on my door. I was in my dress-up clothes. I was bare feet. I was listening to Bing Crosby's Christmas album because it was December, and I was dancing around with my headphones on, one of those big old green headphones, you know? And there was a knock on my door and I opened it and there was someone there that I'd never seen. And Mary Sue goes, come with me quickly. Your mommy's in the car. And I went, I don't go with strangers. Mm. And she looked all startled and she goes, you're a very good girl. And I shut the door and I was like, okay, I did what I was supposed to do. I followed the rules. I need to call my aunties Mm. because they live like a block away. Um, My grandparents, there's no cell phones, you know, whatever. My grandparents aren't in the house. I need to make sure that somebody knows that this just happened. So I walked toward the phone and before I could make it across the living room, the door burst open and my mother, all foot 10, five foot 10 of her, stomped through the door, grabbed me by the arm, kicking and screaming, dragged me down the stairs. I had splinters all over my arms barefoot in the winter, threw me into the back of the car with the new baby that she had just given birth to oh my God! and proceeded to start screaming at me that I was upsetting the baby. 
They peeled out and drove away. By the time my grandparents got back from their walk, there were six police cars outside the doors of their house because a neighbor had seen what had happened and called 911. Oh my God. So Mama and Mary Sue drove me from Washington State down to Portland, Oregon, crossing state lines, which immediately got the FBI involved because now you're taking a minor across state lines yeah. for nefarious purposes. They allowed me the chance to call grandma. Um, Mama called um, her mother to tell her that I was safe, that I was alive. Um, and my grandmother, I heard her screaming on the phone, bring my baby girl back. And mama's like, well, you can talk to her. And she turned to me and she's like, if you cry, if you cry, I'm taking the phone away. So I grabbed the phone. I said, grandma, and then started sobbing because of course. Right. Mama, the, we were in a phone booth on the side of the road. I was still barefoot and in my dress up clothes with no warm jacket. She grabbed me and literally threw me onto the ground outside the, the telephone booth. Mary Sue picked me up, put me in the car, and I immediately fell asleep. Like, my tiny brain just couldn't handle it anymore. Mm -hmm. We drove to a friend of Weba's, the, the organization. Um, they had a friend living in Portland. And so she let us spend the night at the house thinking that Mama was rescuing a child. That night, the baby was asleep. Mary Sue had fallen asleep, and it was just Mama and I in the living room. And my mother asked me what had happened. Why did I go with Grandma? Why did I disobey her? Why did I betray her? And I told her what was going on with Michael, and I was like, this makes me uncomfortable. This is not okay. Mm -hmm. And she was silent for a moment, and she said, oh, God, tell me you didn't tell your grandmother that. Oh, my God. And that was the only time we talked about it. That yeah. was the last and only time that we talked about what happened with yeah. Robert. Oh, my gosh. So the next day, I was dressed up as a little boy. My ticket had the name Jeremy on it. And Mama put on a wig and glasses and took the baby. And we got on a plane together. This is Mama sat on one seat up front. I sat in seats in the back with Mary Sue yeah. as Mary Sue's son. We changed clothes when we landed in the Atlanta airport. Mama and I flew home to North Carolina. Mary Sue flew home to Michigan. And the FBI lost us in the Atlanta airport. Oh, my gosh. This is straight up a movie, <laughs> Jesse. I mean, this is – I know we got a book, and we're going to talk about the book, but somebody better pick this up. I mean, your your life alone is – I related to a, a pendulum, right? I don't know if I said that before, but it goes back and forth and back and forth. I mean, you poor thing, like – here you are in a bad situation and then, you know, grandma comes in and rescues you and you've got some reprieve for five or six months. But I mean, that's straight up from a scene from a movie no, door getting kicked in and you getting taken away and dragged off and changing clothes and, you know, yep. disguises. Oh my gosh, this is, this is crazy, but we're, we're not done with the story yet. Let's, let's keep going. Right. We're, you're now back in North Carolina, right? With the, so with two the days later, the cops pulled up to the house. They figured out where my mother was living. Mm -hmm. They pulled up to the house with a warrant for her arrest and suspicion on Robert. And Papa came in, put me in a coat, and handed me out the back window to a neighbor. The neighbor ran across the street around the block, and I hid in a closet for three hours waiting for the police to leave. 
My mother was arrested and taken to jail. She was part of an organization called the Lechi League, which is a pro-nursing organization. They teach you how to nurse your babies and they talk about like um, all of the health benefits, all of the, the positive things that come with nursing. The Lechi League and my mother's pastor, the pastor of the cult that she was involved in, um, wrote letters to the judge saying that it is unhealthy for a nine-month-old baby to be away from a nursing mother, that you're causing irreparable damage. And they released my mother from jail. I was in hiding for two years. During that time, I met with a social worker to talk about what happened with Robert because Robert was being considered for arrest. So they brought in a male social worker to speak to me about the sexual abuse that I was receiving from my stepfather. And of course I told him nothing. Yeah. You were, <laughs> I'm sure you were very comfortable in that situation. Oh my gosh. I don't think I've ever been so embarrassed in my entire life. Yeah. Like he literally did the, you know, show me on the doll where your daddy touched you. Yeah. And I was like, I'm embarrassed that we're having this conversation. Yeah. We're done. I can't do this. Um, I actually have the, because once again, my grandmother took copious notes. Yeah. I actually have the transcript of the conversation along with a cassette tape of the conversation between myself and the social worker. And you can hear when my voice changes from what I've been taught by my mother yeah, your script. and where I'm being real. And the parts where I'm being real, I am absolutely mortified yeah. that this conversation is going on. So I was in hiding for two years. I stayed at different families' houses, didn't see my little brothers for years, years and years. Um, my parents would come and visit occasionally, but basically I was just left to my own devices at random people's houses for more than two years. What's the law enforcement doing at, at this point now, right? Because your grandma still has custody. You vanished for all intents and purposes that night. So there was a judge during the course of this, this investigation, there was a judge in Washington state that said, not only should my mother not have custody of Jesse, but she should not have custody of the children that she has. Mm -hmm. And if I had the opportunity to take all of her children away from her, I would. Then they went to North Carolina for another round of court. Um, and the judge there said not only same thing, not only should Dolores not have custody of Jesse, she should not have custody of the rest of her children. She is a dangerous woman. This is a dangerous situation. Yeah. We have proof of abuse. This is not okay. Um, the final judge, when it came back to court again, because basically my mother was keeping me in hiding mm -hmm. so that my grandmother wouldn't have cut like because you know what is it um uh possession is nine tenths of the law Correct. that kind of thing so she was keeping me away from my grandmother by keeping me hidden the final judge um and i have this note uh so the second judge actually put a note in the in the court documents that said that if this case ever comes back to court i get custody of this case i am the only judge that is allowed to have conversations about jesse and her grandparents this judge literally looked at the note picked it up and held it in front of the court and said, I see this, I recognize it, and I'm denying it. Mm. Set it back down and said, Jesse's been passed around long enough. Dolores gets custody. Oh, my God. My grandfather, the Navy man, stood up, pointed his whole hand at this judge and called him a son of a bitch. Oh, yeah. And the judge said that's $500 contempt of court. Mm. And my grandfather turned to my grandmother and said, 
Prudence, how much money do we have in the bank? Because I got some more shit to say to this man. Wow. My grandmother's like, yeah. Ronald, sit down. Yeah, 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 yeah. And at that point, they had spent $60,000 to try and get me back. Oh my God. And it was over. Yeah. So at this point, we're living at the Lyle Down house. My mother um, collected unwed mothers and talked them out of having abortions and then helped them have their baby quickly discarded them and then gifted the baby to whoever she felt was most, most worthy at the time wow. without documentation. Yeah. Um, I have a TikTok. Um, so I started doing a TikTok a little while ago and I had posted a story of a young woman um, who was, uh, when I was 14, who was pregnant with a black man's baby. And there was much drama in the church mm -hmm. because, oh my God. Right. Um, oh, gas mm -hmm. she was 16 my mother bailed her out of jail took her away from her friends took her away from her family took her away from her support system and took her away from the father of her baby and kept her in the middle of the woods and basically told her you can't do this this is not going to be a successful experience for you it's abusive for you to keep your baby not offering her help not offering her care she gave birth on my bed she was 16, I was 14, and she immediately started to hemorrhage. And the cops got involved. My mother took the baby, took the baby downstairs, handed it to the adoptive parents. This was the one time the adoptive parents had actually insisted on paperwork, which kept my mother from going to jail. Because the cops showed up, they have a woman who's just given birth in the middle of the woods with no baby. And they're immediately accusing my family of burying a baby on the property. She went to the hospital. She was fine. The little girl who was adopted was raised in a good, caring family. But I told the story on TikTok and somebody came into my comments and said, oh, so your mother was a human trafficker. And I went, huh? Yeah. What, uh, huh? Yeah. I need a minute. I need a minute. Yeah. Because, oh, no. Oh, no. So she was, we were living at the Lyle Down house, which was this beautiful three-story mansion in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. And it was owned by a church. And at that point, um, my mother had done about $150,000 worth of damage to this mansion because she's a hoarder. And uh, we, they couldn't even hold church at the mansion anymore. And so we moved to a broken down farmhouse in the middle of the woods. I was 11. Um, the house had been abandoned for 10 years. It had about six inches of dust on the floor, uh, lice, um, mice, snakes, um, roaches, ants, fleas. Um, there were honeybees in the wall. We actually had honey dripping down the inside of the walls when the summer came. Um, it was unheated. There was one fireplace. Um, and it was January when we moved in. At this point, I have three little brothers and myself. And we had three children who my mother was in the process of adopting from an abusive family, an even more abusive family. And we, so we had, it was me and seven kids under the age of 10. And my mother decided she wanted to start a farm. So we started collecting animals. We got goats and chickens and cows and dogs and cats, more chickens. Um, and we started this little broken down farm, rabbits, that kind of thing. Yeah. 
So it was my responsibility to take care of the farm. I milked cows and milked goats. I took care of the rabbits and the chickens, the dogs and the cats. I took care of my siblings. I taught them school. My mother was the first. So part of Bill Gothard's teaching in the book, How to Train a Child, Train Up a Child, is specifically encouraging people to homeschool their children so that they can be indoctrinated. Um, my mother was the first person in North Carolina to open a homeschool. And so she, quote unquote, homeschooled all of us. I had the most education at second grade and was an, a, an avid reader. And so I started teaching my brothers by the time I was 10. I taught them all how to read. I taught math. I taught like everything that I yeah. possibly could to the best of my ability. And that is the extent of the education they have. To the point when I left at 19, my baby sister was two and she didn't learn to read until she left home at 19 herself Wow! because I wasn't there to teach her. So 19, is that when the light at the end of the tunnel starts to shine maybe a little bit? You said that you get to leave. Just a little bit. Yeah. Where do we go? So I was working at the radio station. I was the only female DJ on four radio stations. Thank you, thank you, thank you. At 19, (laughs) I loved being a DJ. And my mother had decided that I was getting too worldly. And I needed to quit my job and come home and learn to make quilts. And I am not even joking. Yeah, it sounds much better than being a DJ. Sure, why not? (laughs) Um, Basically, I wasn't there to take care of her so that she could stay in bed all day. Yeah. Um, so it was my last day at the radio station and the night before I had gotten in an argument with my oldest brother and my stepfather had bent me over a table and given me a spanking measured beating is more like it Mm. for having a bad attitude. And at that point I realized I'm an adult. I'm 18 years old. This is wrong of all the things that I could point to that I'm not comfortable with. This is something that I can literally look at and say, this is abuse. I need to leave. So I um, packed up my stuff, went to the radio station and I was on the air and my mother and father went through my, my office, discovered that I had packed to leave and broke into the studio to start screaming at me while I was on air. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I closed, closed down, closed, turn off the mic, um, closed down all of the stuff, reset that the whole time my mother is screaming at me and cussing me out. Um, turn off the mic, turned off all of the things so that the radio station would run on its own, set the computer to run for the evening. Turned around to face my mother. She spent three hours calling me every name in the book accusing me of being possessed by demons, accusing me of sleeping around, of doing drugs, um, of betraying her, because that is the ultimate sin, Mm. is to betray your parents. And after three hours, my stepfather, who hadn't said a word, told her to go home. Nobody tells my mother what to do. But at this point, she had run out of steam. And so she packed up her stuff and left. We're quiet for a moment. My stepfather says, are you pregnant? No, I'm a good Christian girl. I'm a virgin. Thank you for asking. And he says, are you on drugs? And I said, no, Papa. And he says, are you on your period? This is the conversation we're having? Really? No, I'm no, Papa, I'm not on my period. I don't want to live here anymore. I'm leaving. 
So he spent about an hour, half hour, and convinced me to come home for the night and that he would help me find a safe place to stay that wasn't at home tomorrow. So I went home. When I got home, there was a note on the door from one of my brothers, and it said, Sissy, please don't leave. We're sorry. We've been bad. We love you so much. We promise to clean the house. My mother had a half an hour at home with my siblings mm. and spent that time gaslighting them yeah. to let them know that this was their fault, that I was choosing to leave an abusive situation. Mm. So I went upstairs and sat down on my bed. My babyest brother, I was there when he was born. He was eight, and he put his arms around me, started sobbing. Sissy, I'm so sorry I've been bad. Like, buddy, you haven't been bad. You haven't been bad. And then my little sister, who I actually delivered, climbed up on my lap. She was five, and she put her hands on my face so she could look at me. She looks at my eyes, and she goes, Sissy, does you have demons? Baby girl, I doesn't have demons. Mm. She goes, I prayed to Jesus so that you wouldn't have demons, so that you could stay home with me. Mm. Wow. What a tangled web. So the next day, um, I convinced my parents to allow me to go to an inner city commune in Chicago called Jesus People USA. And uh, Papa drove me up there. And there's a bit of a story there, but I ended up living at this inner city commune, which was essentially out of the frying pan and into the fire. Um, I had been groomed my whole life that my job was to take care of older men, that that was my responsibility. And so I fell very comfortably into a religious organization that encouraged that. Mm. Um, it didn't take me long to um, basically get picked out by one of the older guys. And they have all of these rules at, at Japuza, like you're not allowed to date, you're not allowed to hang out with the opposite sex, um, you're not allowed to go downstairs in the evenings because that's where the boys hang out. Um, communication with the opposite sex is, is fiercely forbidden. Um, and so if you're interested in someone, uh, you go to your family head, the married couple whose umbrella was over you, and um, if they think that you're ready for a relationship, they would go to her family head. And then if they think you're really, that she's ready for a relationship, they would, together, the four of them would agree that the two of you can start, quote unquote, hanging out, which mm -hmm. means being in the same room together and communicating. Mm -hmm. So after a year of being at Japuza, I had cheese sandwiches and pop with um, my soon-to-be husband. Um, after we got engaged, once you're engaged, you're allowed to hold hands and you're allowed to have one kiss a day on the lips. Oh my gosh. No long hugs. Very careful in the communication that you have. Bible studies only kind of thing. So I was engaged and it was really important to me that I honor my mother and father because that is a biblical principle that I believed in. Right. So Leonard, my now ex-husband, Leonard and I paid for uh, Dolores and Robert to fly up to Chicago. Um, we allowed them to pick a mediator and we were gonna have a sit down conversation. So we had this two day meeting. Um, the mediator basically said, this is a very toxic relationship. Jesse's doing everything in her power to honor her parents and you guys are completely out of line. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and that was the last time I saw my mother for 20 years. Wow. I got married. I was married for 10 years. It was a very unhealthy relationship. Um, Leonard was very childlike. Um, I was 19 when we met and he was 32. Um, so why he had interest in a teenager beyond me. Um, big red flags there right. that I totally missed. So we got married. We were married for 10 years. And uh, at that point, I chose to leave the inner city commune um, with much drama. I uh, had gotten to a point. So divorce was completely frowned upon. Mm -hmm. And by frowned upon, I mean not allowed. Um, or at least in my mind, it was not allowed. Divorce was just not an option. And if there's no out from a toxic relationship, um, the only thing that I could consider was unaliving myself. So my depression and my anxiety had gotten so bad that I was trying to figure out a safe way to unalive myself mm. where no one would find me because I didn't want this to be a traumatic experience for someone else. Right. And the only person I could hear was a friend who told me that I deserved better than that. Unfortunately, he was the husband of one of my dear friends. Mm. And so I ended up having an affair for about six months. Do not recommend. Do not recommend. Bad scene all the way around. Yeah. It was ugly. And the ministry, the, the commune, wanted me to stay, wanted me to continue living in, in the same building as my abuser, as well as the man that I had an affair with and his wife and children. And I was like, this is not okay. So I called my best friend. Um, my best friend lives out in Seattle or lived out in Seattle at the time. And I called her and I told her what had happened. And her immediate response was, get on a plane. You're coming out here. You need to get out of this situation. You need to get as far away from these people as you can and get your head on straight. So I flew to Washington. And June, who'd been friends with me for about 10 years at that point, um, walked me through the uh, survival mechanisms of dealing with the divorce, um, the therapy of dealing with an, a husband who was um, very toxic, and a lot, a lot, a lot of therapy. She helped me find a job. She helped me get my first apartment. I started going to school. Um, I, was, uh, I was a swing dancer in hey. uh, Chicago. Gotta love some swing. That's right. Um, and so when I moved out to Seattle, the first thing I did was find the swing dance community, which is an incredibly fun community. Yeah. And you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a nerd. And so it was just, <laughs> it was so much fun. And um, I got encouraged. You can't swing a dead like, cat hey. without hitting a nerd? <laughs> Let's go back there for a second. Come on, fill me in on that. What does that mean? What? Is well, that... you pick up a dead cat and swing it. You're going to hit somebody, right? Okay. Most likely that person's going to be a nerd. Okay. Okay. I got gotcha. you. There are, there are Star Wars nerds. There's Doctor Who nerds. There's computer nerds. They're all out here. And a lot of them are swing dancers. Nice. Like, seriously. Um, so the swing dance community is pretty nerdy and yeah. it's a lot of fun. And um, I went from swing dancing. I also took up blues dancing, which if you've never heard of blues dancing, blues dancing looks and feels like blues music sound okay low and slow and close and sexy and a lot of fun and it was really good for my emotional state because I could get um 
physical connection yeah. with people without there being strings attached, yeah. without there being a requirement or an expectation that there was more to it than just to dance. It was a very safe way yeah. to have physical connection with people. So I took up blues dancing. I was very passionate about it. And um, there was uh, a little Haitian bar in Seattle that we used to go to. And uh, a bunch of us would get together. We'd all have dinner at the Haitian bar. Uh, the old Haitian grandma would come out and feed us goat. And then we would dance until two o'clock in the morning. And it was fantastic. Wow. And so I found my community here. Mm-hmm. And I was taxi dancing um, at Blues Underground. And taxi dancing basically means you wear a... Um, a scarf on your arm that tells people that you will say yes to any dance. So if you're new to the dance scene, look for a taxi dancer. It's a great way to be like, you know, they're going to say yes. You don't have to know anybody to get comfortable on the dance floor. Um, and it, it gets you, it gets you involved in the community right. very quickly. It's code. And so I was taxi, right? So I'm taxi <laughs> dancing. And so I'm inviting everybody. Hey, gals, gals, girls, let's yeah. guys, let's get on on the dance floor. And so here comes this new guy. And I'm like, Hey, new guy, let's dance. And he's like, sure. We got out of the dance floor and I won the lottery because he was an exceptionally good dancer. So I asked him to dance again and he was an exceptionally good dancer. And I went, "Uh oh, oh no, oh no, I'm getting the feels. (laughs) So dance crush, we call this a dance crush where the chemistry is just perfect on the dance floor, right? And what you're supposed to do, so like the unwritten rule is when you get a dance crush, you go, oh, it's very warm in here. I think I'll step outside for a minute. And if they're interested, they follow. And usually you can get like two or three, you know, two or three minutes of conversation and you realize, oh, this is just a dance crush. I'm not interested in you as a person. Reset my standards here. Let's go dance. We might have to have you on, Jesse, for an entirely different show of diving down the (laughs) rabbit hole of the dance community. I'm, I'm. I'm definitely interested in all this stuff. This is crazy. But Isn't anyway. It fun? Yeah, definitely. Um, so you step outside, okay? Step outside, I'm cooling off, mm-hmm. and here comes a new guy. All right. Turns out his name is Alex. So we started having some conversations, and I said, hey, you know, there's a bunch of dances in Seattle. You're new here. Let me set you up with, you know, you got to come to Wade's. You got to go out to the Odd Duck Studios. You know, my birthday's next week, and a bunch of us are getting together if you want to come. You can't take that personally. I would do that for anyone. Come on. Mm-hmm. So he shows up at Odd Duck Studios. And there's not very many people there. So we end up sitting outside talking until like 1 o'clock in the morning and not doing a lot of dancing. And we had one of those kind of grown-up conversations because at this point we're both in our 30s. He'd been married for 16 years. I'd been married for 10. We were both divorced. We're not, we're not here to play around. Let's have some grown-up conversations. What baggage are you bringing to this? <laughs> Before I ask you out, what's your what's your drama, right. right? So he's, you know, he's he's plays four instruments, and he's a computer engineer, and he's a dancer, rides a motorcycle. Oh, my God. He has four kids. Four kids? <laughs> well, uh, huh. Interesting. Tell me more. Yeah. Mm. Weird. So I have mint condition uterus. I have never been interested in having children. I raised all of my siblings. I am. I know the work that goes into having kids. Mint and that's condition that's uterus. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's great. Still in the box. Still go. in the box. There you go. <laughs> Not interested. Gotcha. So here's this gentleman who has four kids. So I call my best friend the next day and I'm like, hey, I have a dance crush. And she's like, oh, God, who is it? So I tell her about this guy and I'm like, yeah, he's got four kids. And she's like, oh, okay, so I don't have to worry about you. And I went, I don't 
I don't mind that much. And yeah. She's like, what? Hey, what? Yeah. Hang on a minute. Like, yeah, it doesn't. It's fine. So we went on on our first date. He invited me out to dinner. So we went out to this little pizza place and it was really sweet. And we're sitting there talking and he's like, hey, you know, I was married for 16 years. Here's what happened in my marriage. What about you? Why did you get divorced? Mm. Ooh. Mm-hmm. That's, oh, that, you know, hmm, I really want you to think well of me. This is kind of an ugly story. I'm going to start not, uh, peeling back frank. the layers of this onion right now or what? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I mean, it's been really great getting to know him. Yeah. I guess we'll just be friends. Yeah. So I told him, yeah, yeah, I was married for 10 years. I was really miserable. I ended up having an affair. Yep. Not who I am. It is something that I chose to do. Don't recommend. Yeah. Um, and I, I would say I'm still in recovery for it yeah and he goes huh what brought you to chicago yeah this is not even a blip on his radar yeah he was literally like that is a thing that happened moving on that's right that's right just like you said before i mean everybody has has baggage everybody Mm -hmm. has baggage so this is this is your happily ever after that was 14 years ago oh my gosh that is awesome i couldn't be more happy here for you Thank you. And it was amazing because like I fell so much in love when I finally like we dated for like six months before I met his kids. He wanted to be really like sure, sure. Um, And I met his kids and was immediately like, you realize if we break up, the kids go with me. Right. right. Like that's right. um, He had a 19 year old, a 16 year old, a 14 year old and an 11 year old. Um, So they the 11 year old and the 14 year old were girls Mm -hmm. and they lived with their mom. The 16-year-old lived with him. The 19-year-old was out on his own. So when we moved in together, I basically moved in with him and a 16-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. And um, his 16-year-old is one of my favorite humans on the planet. Like, we just totally got along and hung out and watched movies together. And it was great. Um, and the nice thing about being a stepmom is, you know, the kids come to you and they're like, oh, I want to get my cranium pierced. And you're mm-hmm. like, that's a great idea. Ask your dad. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> That's right. And then they come back and they're like, dad said no. It's like, oh, he's so lame, man. Oh, <laughs> it's not totally me. Feel you. <laughs> it's not me. It's your father. But... Uh, it's the best. And now we have four grandbabies. Oh, and awesome. I actually, um, after Alex and I moved in together, I started going to school for graphic design. I ended up writing a book about all of this because it's just such an incredible story. And when I started writing, my grandmother, who kept all of these notes and journals and doctor's appointment notes mm-hmm. and letters from the Navy and FBI files and all this. And so she started sending me boxes and she ended up sending me like 45 boxes full of paperwork wow. that I had to go through. Did you find it therapeutic? Just- uh, yes, I was in a lot of therapy during that. So, you know, when you, when you read notes from your mother saying how she wants you dead, yeah. that's, mm, that's rough. Um, but being able to sort out facts from fiction. So when I was seven, after the kidnapping, I lost my memory. I lost all memories of my aunties. I lost all memories of my grandparents. Couldn't, couldn't pick them out of a lineup. The only things I remembered was that Robert was dangerous and was abusive and I remembered the kidnapping but I didn't remember why I was so scared I knew I was scared but I didn't remember why because I didn't remember my grandparents like my brain basically shut that out completely it's crazy yeah it's crazy how our bodies do that. so I started getting I started getting flashbacks when I was in high school mm. which traumatized the hell out of me um and so I didn't have like all I had was my mother's version of events yeah in my head which is you know my mom's a narcissist so it's 
pretty messed up. Yeah. Um, so going through these files and going, oh, that was when this date happened. Mm. Oh, this didn't happen this way. This happened a different way. Yeah. And so when I started writing my book, I actually started contacting the people who were involved in these stories and asking them their version of events so that I could clarify what really happened. So like the young woman who um, almost died on my bed from having a baby, yeah. I contacted the sheriff's department and I'm, and I, I was like, Hey, you know, do you guys remember this situation? This is what happened. Um, do you remember what's going on? And they're like, Hey, the police officer who was involved is the sheriff. Now let me get him on the phone. So he gets on the phone with me and he's like, hang on a second. Two other guys who were there are here. I want them to hear this. And so I'm on the speaker phone with these three men and they're like, what happened to this baby? Cause they never found out what happened to the baby. Mm. And they were convinced that my mother had buried this baby on the property. I'm like, no, her name's Grace. You know, she grew up and I'm listening to these guys like cry and laugh on the phone yeah. because they, they didn't know the true story of what happened or the, the conclusion of what happened. What an amazing journey. Yeah. What an amazing so journey. when I, when I started writing my story, the whole point was for me to organize it in my head, mm -hmm. like just get it down on paper. Then it got to a point where I had the story down on paper, how to organize it. And then after that, it was, what's the point of writing this story? And I realized I wanted the story to be a survivor's guide. Yeah. That this this story has a happy ending. It, it doesn't just disappear into the ether like, hey, awful things happened. But there's also a lot of magic and beauty that happened growing up in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Yeah. You know, the baby cows that were born, the baby sheep, um, conversations with my siblings, um, the the eight of us holding each other together and staying safe from mama and papa. Um, so I tried to put a lot of the magic that happened in these stories in the books as well, because yeah. it's really easy to talk about the abuse and the trauma. Yeah. But there was a lot of beauty that happened as well. That's I tell my kids all the time. There's so much crap in life and and you know, things that you'll, that you'll face, you've got to find the silver lining. You've got to find the positive things because if you focus on the negative things, it'll bring you down. And yep. you have such an amazing story. I want to be mindful of your time, but I want you to tell Good Vibes Nation, where, where can we find the book? Where can we find you? Where can we find more? And if anybody's listening, y'all need to pick this up. This needs to be a movie. I mean, this young lady story right here is amazing and it's full of triumph too thank you so the name of the book is girl hidden Woo, there you can it is. find it on amazon right here <laughs> i have a tiktok and a facebook and an instagram uh you can find me at girlhidden.com and um that's got connections to all the things it's got some of the other podcasts that i've done on it it's got my bio and some information and also any new stories that come up because there's a lot of stories that didn't end up in the book mm. so my tiktok is actually full of a lot of crazy stories that didn't end up in the book that are just a lot of fun and so they're you know the story continues um but yeah check out girlhidden.com um i'd love for you to read my story i'd love to hear what you think about it and i'd love to hear your stories as well that's actually one of the coolest things that's that's happened since me writing this book is how many people have come to me and gone, Oh my God, my mother was just like this. Yeah. Oh no, I went through this kind of abuse too. I want to talk about it. Mm. And hearing these stories is really empowering and encouraging to me. Absolutely. And you said girlhidden.com. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And we can find all your socials on that as well. Yes. Fantastic. We're going to do it. We're going to check it out. You guys better do it. Jesse, thank you so much for your time. Like I said, what an amazing journey. I am, I'm so proud of you and I've only known you here for the past <laughs> hour, 
but you're such a beautiful person in what you're doing for everybody. Like you said, a survivor's guide. I mean, a lot of people can't do that. A lot of people can't go back to that place, don't want to go back to that place, but you're doing it. You have a passion. Like I said, this this story is it is a pendulum, but look, now you're on the other side, and I'm so happy for you. You and Hubs and, and all the fam. But we'll have to yes, have you on again. You. I'm telling you, we're gonna we're gonna dive down that dance rabbit hole next time. Heck yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Jesse. Thanks for having me on.